Hello and welcome to Real Living. This is Lavinia Spirito and we got something special for you today, something different. I recorded a series on the passion and the resurrection and the burial of the Lord. And I thought that it might be interesting to present them in podcast form for Lent. And I think this should be interesting for you all. So enjoy. Today we are talking about the burial and the resurrection, and this is the happy ending, okay? This is what we live for. This is what we get up in the morning for. This is why we're Christians. We needed all the other stuff leading up to this day, but this should be the hallmark of our faith, And in fact, it is the hallmark of our faith, whether we think so or not. I don't know how many people you've ever run into, and I do seem to do this often, unfortunately, who you'll run into them at a cocktail party or at a meeting or somewhere, and they'll say, well, does it really matter whether Jesus rose from the dead? You know, it just, he was a good teacher. You know, he taught us how to love, and he taught us about peace, and he was a good guy, and, you know, Do we really need to kind of stray into the la-la land factor, you know, with the resurrection? You know, I actually uh, once talked to somebody who I really like. She's a a friend of mine who uh, just completed a degree um, as a minister in another um, denomination. And she basically said, I have no problem with the idea of Jesus not rising from the dead. That's just an incidental. Um, There are, there's one congregation in particular here in town, which not too long ago took a vote (laughs) as to whether Jesus rose from the dead. There is a, um, there's a bishop uh, in uh, the Episcopalian denomination, in the American Episcopalian Church called Selby Spong. He was a bishop in New Jersey. I think he's since retired who wrote a book called, um, I think it was uh, The Resurrection, Fact or Fiction. And he was a big one about talking about the historical Jesus, as if the Jesus who actually walked the, uh, the streets of Palestine was somebody different from the Jesus that all of us poor, simple-minded people believe in who actually rose from the dead and is the Son of God. So, you know, I, and it seems like every Lent there's an attack on the resurrection, for the past 10, 15 years in the media, whether it's Jesus's tomb, whether it's the Da Vinci Code, whether it's, uh, you know, you name it. So this concerted attack against the resurrection must mean something, wouldn't you say? I mean, if in fact it were an unimportant, peripheral, incidental part of our faith, you would think that less time would be wasted trying to attack it. But in fact, and as you know, I will submit to you what the church has submitted for our belief and acceptance for the past 1,900 years, and that is that Jesus rose from the dead. Jesus is the second person of the Trinity. Jesus, the eternal word, came into the body of Jesus. Christ, the eternal word, came into the body of Jesus of Nazareth, creating the God-man who went to his death for our sakes and was raised on the third day for us on his own power. That distinguishes Jesus from Lazarus or from the son of the widow of Nain, for example. They were raised by Jesus through God's power, but Jesus raised himself. So keep that in mind. Remember what Paul said. And Paul was no slouch. Paul was an intellectual mind of the first water. He was cool. He was level-headed. He was extremely well-learned. And Paul himself says, if Jesus did not raise himself from the dead, if Jesus did not rise from the dead, we of all men are the most to be pitied because we have believed a lie. Our entire faith is based on whether Jesus rose from the dead or not. And in fact, we know that Jesus did 
rise. And we're going to talk about that today. First, we're going to talk about the events after the crucifixion. If you'll recall, last time we left off with Jesus' death and with the incredible events that surround Jesus' death, the earthquake, the veil and the temple being torn from top to bottom and all that meant, all that that meant. We talked about the, the dead coming out of their tombs and walking around and appearing to people in the city. Tell me that didn't cause a stir. Talk about the eclipse of the sun that occurred at the same time, sort of coincidentally with the death of this man on the cross. And so you have the, the, the pitiful aftermath. You have that moment that's been captured in art so well again and again and again. Michelangelo, as a teenager, produced an incredible statue portraying this moment called the Pietà, which you can find, we used to be able to find in St. Peter's Basilica. And it's the Blessed Mother cradling her son, her dead son, as he's taken down from the cross. The business of taking bodies down from crosses was a pretty grisly one because you had to basically pry out of the wood the hands that had been so securely fastened with six-inch spikes. And you had to pry the feet away from the wood where they had been so securely fastened. As a matter of fact, there's uh, evidence from when they were digging under the subway, under the, under the Jerusalem for the subway in the 60s to create the subway, they found um, the spoils of a man, uh, a young man who had been crucified in the first century under the Romans. And he had been crucified. And they found the fact that he had nail holes in his hands, but they also find the fact that it must have been so hard to take that iron spike from, um, from his feet that he was buried with the spike in his feet because they just gave up. It was so permanently entrenched there. So that should give you <coughs> an idea of how hard it was to remove a body from a cross. So the whole procedure, it's estimated to have taken maybe about 40 minutes, 30, 40 minutes. And as that occurred, um, tradition has, or actually we do know that the, tra the, the tradition was to lay a small cloth on the face of the person who was being extricated from, from, uh, from the spikes. And uh, we have a name for that cloth that was placed on Jesus' face. It's called the sudarium, a sudarium. And in fact, uh, in a cathedral in Spain, in Oviedo, there is a cloth called the Sudarium of Oviedo, which is venerated as the cloth that covered Jesus' face as they were removing him from the cross. Interestingly enough, the blood type on the Sudarium of Oviedo agrees with the blood type on the Shroud of Turin, whether in, meaning that they were both AB, type AB, which is a, uh, apparently a very common uh, blood type uh, in uh, Near Eastern in the Near Eastern population, especially at the time. Chapter 23, verse 50. Now there was a man named Joseph from the Jewish town of Arimathea. He was a member of the council, a good and righteous man, who had not consented to their purpose indeed, and he was looking for the kingdom of God. This man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. So this means that there's a rich merchant by the name of Joseph, Joseph from the town of Arimathea. And Arimathea contains in it the seeds of the word Rama. And Rama is a word steeped in tragedy in, in Hebrew history because apparently there was a great genocide of infants there at some time, at some point in, in Israel's history. And so the word Rama is always associated with sadness and with a sad place, with sad circumstances. So, G so Joseph, who was a secret follower for obvious reasons of this very sort of popular slash unpopular rabbi, finally drops his cover and decides at this time he who had been such a secret follower, also on top of that a member of the Sanhedrin, imagine the same body who condemned Jesus. Imagine sitting there as they condemn the person that you're following in secret. And imagine being Nicodemus, another member of the Sanhedrin, and having to sit through that kangaroo trial, maybe even voicing protests that went unheeded. And he, so he finally drops his cover, and he goes to Pilate, and he asks for Jesus' body. 
That must have taken a lot of courage. Imagine. And also, look at the contrast between the disciples, who were so closely identified with Jesus publicly, running away during this time, and think of Joseph, who was a secret disciple, coming forward so publicly to claim the body of the master. Because something has to be done. They have to bury him. Where are they going to put him? He had no tomb. If he had had a family tomb, it would have been in Galilee. It wouldn't have been in Jerusalem. But even so, there is no place to put the master. And so you can see the, the, the mind of Joseph developing this idea. Well, I have a tomb. I just built this tomb. Nobody's ever been in it. I will put the master in this tomb. I will go forward and I will ask for the body. And in fact, he has given the body. Now, this, the location of the tomb. There's a couple of different theories. There was a, uh, in the 19th century, there was a um, English, I think, um, colonel by the name of Gordon. And he was in Palestine as part of, you know, uh, the, the, the British protectorate that that piece of land used to be. And he had some the theories as to where the name of Jesus could have been. And his, he proposes for us, uh, a location about a thousand feet from the Damascus Gate in a quarry at the intersection of the Damascus-Jericho trade routes. And there, you know, he does have a point. Often execution sites were at uh, the intersection of trade routes, so people would, you know, there would be a deterrent factor. And in fact, there is apparently a site today that is proposed for your examination should you go to the Holy Land in a garden. It's called Gordon's Calvary. And he thought this particular spot looked like Golgotha. However, the traditional site observed by um, basically uh, 1,400 years of tradition, 1,500 years of tradition, 1,600 years of tradition since the Emperor Constantine would be the Church of the Holy Sepulchre today. It's across town. It's outside the Jaffa Gate. And there is other corroborating evidence, I think, that makes it more convincing for me that this is, would be where Jesus would have been buried. First of all, there are other first century tombs in that area. And second of all, and most convincing, Emperor Hadrian in the 140s came into Jerusalem with an eye to obliterating cult sites of other religions which were bothersome. And at that point, the Christian cult, the Christian religion, well, had been pinpointed by the Roman Empire as a troublesome religion that needed to be obliterated. And this was one of the, and of course, Jerusalem being the place of Jesus's ministry and death was littered with places that were venerated by pilgrims and venerated by people who lived there. This is where Jesus was buried. This is where Jesus was crucified. This is where Jesus celebrated the Last Supper. You know, this is where Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. And they were all places that remained in the public worship as places that were venerated. So it wasn't too hard for Hadrian to pinpoint this one spot where Jesus was supposed to have been buried and to immediately imp import tons and tons of dirt, build a huge earth mound over this site, and then build a shrine to Jupiter right on top. And so the idea was, I'm going to build a shrine to the real deities, the, the proper deities, the legal deities of Rome over this shrine. And in fact, that's what happened. And in fact, that was a common practice. There are shrines, there were shrines uh, built to uh, different pagan deities that were kind of superimposed over uh, local uh, sites of cult, in this case, the burial of Jesus. But really, Hadrian did us all a favor, didn't he? He did Constantine a favor because when Helena, Constantine's mother, comes to the Holy Land looking for the cross, she pretty much knows where to go because that was where the Romans had made very sure that nobody else could go. So it was just a matter of digging straight down. And the same thing, when <clears throat> Constantine comes in and wants to uh, you know, build a church to mark the place of Jesus' burial, it's very neatly indicated for him by all the trouble that Hadrian went to, to obliterate that very spot. And so Constantine builds a church in the fourth century to mark this spot. Uh, the, the original structure is destroyed, and the structure that is uh, present now is of crusader origin. But there's still, the basic location makes sense as to where Jesus may have been buried. Now, 
the tombs of the period, we're talking at this point about a tomb for the wealthy. Because if you could not afford a tomb, you were buried sort of loosely in the ground with rocks on top so the animals wouldn't get you. Or you were buried in, in sort of in pits, you know, in common graves. In this case, the rich, the wealthy, the middle class could afford rocks that were hewn out of the side of the hill. And in this case, probably we have a tomb that um, has two chambers, an antechamber and then the tomb proper. And in the antechamber would be a, probably a, a, a room of about nine feet square where they had ledges where you would prepare the body for burial and then you would put it in the tomb itself. And in the tomb itself there were ledges where you would put the bodies, you would wait a requisite time, period of time, usually about a year or two, and then you would go back in and put the bones in ossuaries stone boxes. And so you could fit, you know, several generations of a family in one tomb. That was a standard procedure. And we can assume that's the way Joseph, Joseph's tomb would have been used. And certainly we can assume that the preliminary uh, burial that was given to Jesus was just that. It was a preliminary burial because there was a lot of uh, complicated steps that went into preparing a body properly for burial. So we know that there was a rushed time uh, right after sunset when they take Jesus's body down from the cross and they wrap him in this shroud and then they put him in the tomb and they preliminarily put spices on the, the wrappings, but they're going to come back and do a better job after the Sabbath is ready. That's, that's, the, that's the whole setting. Now, let me talk a little bit about the Shroud of Turin. I am not um, really endorsing the Shroud one way or another. I know there's a lot of uh, controversy uh, surrounding the Shroud. I also know that there's a lot of convincing evidence concerning the Shroud, too. You know, we still don't know how that image got on the cloth. There's still, it's still to this day, there is no clear idea of how the image present only and really available for... Um, viewing only as a negative in a photograph could really have been affixed to that piece of cloth. Let me tell you a little bit about it. The Shroud of Turin is a linen cloth woven in a characteristic Near Eastern herringbone pattern. It's approximately 14 feet long and three feet by seven inches wide. The body would be put in lengthwise and then wrapped lengthwise in the cloth. Um, Impressed in the central part of the shroud is the image of a man who in his early 30s, clearly dead, who had been beaten, who had been scourged, who had been crowned with a full hat of thorns, not just a ringlet, but a, like a basket rammed on his head, who had sustained several unprotected headlong falls carrying a heavy object, and finally had been crucified. After death, this particular man had been stabbed on his right side. Approximately 130 wounds of various size were found on this body. Traces of blood and water, or a water-like substance, were found on the shroud as well. The man's blood type was AB, <clears throat> common in Middle Eastern men. Traces of limestone dust consistent with the limestone rock the garden tomb was hewn out of are present on the shroud. The image is present on the cloth because we can see it, and it's a negative image. So really only available since the advent of the technology of photography. What on the white cloth is just a faint imprint of a face and body, when you take the negative and you turn it around, is a stunning full figure emerging on the negative with many details. The cloth contains remains of over 20 flowers and plants known to bloom only around in Jerusalem, and only in the spring. This man had a beard, shoulder-length hair parted in the middle, and was buried with a chin band, according to custom. There is also some evidence, especially from the right eye, that he was buried with two coins on his eyes, two leptas, coins that were struck between 29 and 32 AD, because there's the face of the governor of Judea on them. They were called, in fact, Pontius Pilate Lepta. Little bitty coins, kind of like the mites, the widow's mite, the widow gives two lepta. Okay, same idea. No one can still account for how the image on the shroud got there. There are different theories. There's particle radiation theory. There's quantum theory. The, the, the fact remains that the images on the shroud literally defy the laws of chemistry and physics as we understand them. May we eventually understand them? 
Probably, who knows? We don't know that. So, enough about the shroud. I just give you some, just as background information, whether you think that the man it, who was buried in the shroud could have been the Lord or not. It's still pretty good background evidence with, with, to which to hang our hat on. Now, remember this. Nicodemus comes and he brings 100 pounds of spices. The spices are identified as aloe and myrrh and rose water, rose oil and hyssop. Myrrh especially is very, very aromatic. When I say aromatic, think mothballs. Okay? Of course, mothballs are made from naphthalene. It's different, but it's that kind of aromatic. I mean, it's like overpowering aromatic. Okay? Don't think about, ooh, they put perfumes on it. No. We're talking about uh, very strong natural substances that were meant to conserve and preserve the body. Okay? So the idea was that uh, myrrh especially was a sticky, gummy substance that you would sprinkle as you wrap the bodies in the folds of the cloth so that eventually you would have this mummy-looking artifact and over time the myrrh would harden into a resin forming a resinous shell and it would be very hard to extricate yourself from something like that, which explains why Lazarus coming out of the tomb needed help. Because he was stuck together. Okay? I mean, it's that kind of thing. Now, the, the idea is basically to preserve the body so well that there's this outer wrapping that allows the body to rot, to mold, and then for the bones to be easily um, found when it comes time to you know go back into the toe tomb. Now, the tomb itself would be sealed by a large rock called a golel. And the rock would be quite big, probably over a ton. And it would be very hard for at least two or three people to roll the stone away. It would be put in a groove that would be built in front of the tomb, dug in front of the tomb, so that this stone would, 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 uh, would swing to in this groove. And then there'd be a smaller stone next to it called a dofeg that would be there to kind of lock it in place. Now... That is probably the mechanics of, of the tomb. But the most important thing you need to keep in mind is that when the Jews, and it, they talk about it in Matthew, it talks about the Jews or the leaders of the Jews going to the Romans and saying, okay, they're gonna, something's going to happen to this body. He said that he was going to you know, rise from the dead. We want to make sure that nobody comes and steals the body, so you have to give us a guard. And so Pilate says, take whatever you want. So they take a, a guard was probably comprised of four soldiers, four Roman soldiers. And they were guarding the seal that had been put on the tomb. It was a Roman seal. It was a blob of wax with two cords running through it. And it was the imperial seal. And so basically what the guards were set over, the guards probably didn't care who was in the tomb. The guards cared about guarding that imperial seal. That was very important. That was the power, the authority of Rome was being guarded by that seal. So they were there to guard the integrity of the seal because breaking the seal in an unauthorized fashion was uh, comported the death penalty. It was a very serious offense. We know that <coughs> there is no way <clears throat> that these particular Roman soldiers would have fallen asleep on the job because the penalty for falling asleep on the job as a Roman sentry was death. Plain and simple. It's hard to imagine how four battle-scarred veterans uh, put to, to guard the, the integrity of the imperial seal would have fallen asleep on duty considering how um, crucial the penalty would have been had they done that. Now... I point this out because you will notice that the leaders of the Jews take so much trouble to make sure that this tomb is unbreakable, that it has a guard, it has a seal, it has a heavy stone in front of it. They've taken all their precautions so that then when the body goes missing, what can they say? In a way, their preparations backfire. Because it adds almost more to the reliability of what's happening later on because they took all these troubles to guard against this eventuality. Now let me read you a little bit, a little harmony of the Gospels. You may have heard 
um, somebody say to you, well, you know, the Gospels all say something different about the resurrection, about what happens after the resurrection, about all these comings and goings in the tomb. So who found him first and who found him second and who talked to him and who didn't talk to him and when did the angels appear? And well, <clears throat> just, put, just put yourself at the place right now. I'm harmonizing all four Gospels right now. You can imagine it happening this way. The holy women carrying the spices previously prepared, start out for the sepulchre before dawn. You can tell they're champing at the bit. They need to get in there. They need to prepare the body of the master. And they want to reach it before sunrise. They're probably anxious about the stone. They arrive, but before they arrive, the angel arrived, frightens the guards by his brightness, puts them to flight, rolls away the stone, and seats himself upon the stone. Some translations say upon the stone, but really it's above the stone. So he's sitting far off the ground. Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome approach the sepulchre, see the stone rolled back, whereupon Mary Magdalene runs back to inform the apostles. The other two holy women enter the sepulchre, finding an angel seated in the vestibule. Now we know what that is. It's the antechamber part of the, of the tomb, who shows them the empty tomb and tells them that Jesus is risen and commissions them to tell the disciples that they shall see Jesus in Galilee. A second group of women, consisting of Joanna and her companions. Now think about all these women who are following Jesus. They probably had a plan. They got together in groups. We're going to go out. We're going to do this. We're going to meet. We're going to bring him spices. You bring this. You bring that. Okay? Consisting of Joanna and her companions arrive at the sepulcher, where they probably agreed to meet the first group, and enter the empty interior. And they're admonished by two angels that Jesus had risen. Not long after, Peter and John, who were notified by Mary Magdalene, arrive at the sepulcher, find the linen cloth, and realize that the sacred body has disappeared without disturbing the outside wrappings. So if somebody, if the, if the body's been stolen, or somebody's taken the body, or if somebody woke up all of a sudden from these bandages, the bandages would be broken. They would be in disarray. They would be open. But the implication is they find the mummy-like structure of the bandages with the myrrh and all the sticky stuff perfectly there, except it's collapsed. Okay? And, that's, and John makes much of this. Mary Magdalene returns to the sepulcher, sees the first two angels, and then Jesus. And she's the first one to talk to Jesus. The two groups of pious women probably meet on their return into the city and go announce it to the disciples. Jesus appears to the disciples, and then he goes to Emmaus. Then he appears to Peter, and he appears to all the apostles, excepting Thomas, and then he comes back and he appears to Thomas. That's kind of a harmony of all four Gospels on the fact of the resurrection of the Lord. Now, all you need to know is that the stone is rolled away. Now, if the stone rolled away, let Jesus out. Does Jesus need the stone to be rolled away? No. no. Who needs the stone to be rolled away? The women. The women. To do what? To go inside, to take a look, to, to what's going on? The soldiers, you know, to kind of flip the soldiers out a little bit, you know? I mean, what happened to the stone? We were guarding it. Okay? Now... Note that as different groups of people are rushing into the disciples saying, he is risen, and they're going, ah, women. <laughs> you know, ah, what have you been smoking? I mean, really, literally, you know, you can see that they're, they're, they're pretty skeptical, right? Why? Because women were, you know, women. They were not very reliable witnesses. As a matter of fact, in first century um, Judaism, women were not reliable witnesses in a courtroom. You couldn't accept their testimony. Okay, so, and yet, the Mishnah states that it was a duty of every Jew to believe in the resurrection. It still is today. It's one of the tenets of Judaism, is a belief in the resurrection. And yet, so, what happened to the body of Jesus? I'm not even going to begin to try and explain to you, but I found some interesting theories. Nobody knows really what happens. Quantum theory, which is a branch of physics, a pretty newly emerged branch of physics, which has to do with the smallest particles of matter, has an interesting theory as to what could have happened. That <clears throat> the reason matter deteriorates and the law of entropy, you know, things left 
by themselves will tend to deteriorate is because matter is arrayed in a certain disordered state. However, uh, the theory behind the um, impulse of energy given by the resurrection enough to um, imprint an image onto the cloth, for example, of the shroud, or to even just exit those bandages, uh, implies some sort of a superordering of the molecules and atoms of this body to perform a super, to kind of constitute a superordered body at a quantum level, so that this body at that point is free of the restrictions of the space-time continuum and can enter, uh, can go through a matter and, and buildings and walls, etc. That's just you know my Mickey Mouse summation of some pretty complicated theories but you know it is one theory i guess the main point is we don't know and are we ever going to know who knows you know do we need to know the mechanics of it no there's a lot of stuff that we don't have know the mechanics of and yet still we believe it how many of you flipping a light switch know exactly what's going on <laughs> you know you know people are convicted for murder on less than eyewitness testimony. You know, you don't have to have eyewitness testimony in order to believe something, okay? And this will, you need to tuck this away for when we talk about the theories against the resurrection. Now, um, we need to say also that what, the Gospel of Matthew has the Jews going to the soldiers saying, here's some money for you to spread the tale that the body was stolen while you were sleeping, and we'll cover with, for you with the governor. Well. Considering the penalty for sleeping on the job was death, I don't think there was much that they could cover with them at the governor's. And this might be a, a kind of an, an unusual way of approaching things. You know? So how do you get around that? I don't know. Now, I'm going to speak about, I'm going to introduce a couple of theories or one theory um, against the resurrection because I want, to, uh, I want to equip you all out there who may have heard people say, you know, the theory of the resurrection really doesn't make any sense. It's not uh, quantifiable. It's not ascertainable in a scientific way. And therefore, we can't believe it. You know, let me tell you this. The church relies on authority, the authority of the church given to G by Jesus, the scriptures, and sacred tradition. These are the first three foremost things we need to believe when we are examining things like the resurrection. Now, when there are other facts out there and other evidence out there, that's nice. That's icing on the cake. But the Shroud of Turin is not part of the deposit of the faith, okay? And neither is any of this other stuff that we're talking about. But the thing that, that needs to stay intact is that we as Catholics believe what the church proposes for our belief and what is proposed in the scriptures and what sacred tradition passes down to us. These other facts are all very nice. Now, you may have heard, before we go to break, let me just try one theory. There's a number of theories against the resurrection, okay? The first theory is the wrong tomb theory, and that is the women went to the wrong tomb. You know, it was an empty tomb, yeah, because they went to the wrong tomb. Of course, you know, that would mean the soldiers were guarding the wrong tomb, that the wrong tomb had been sealed, it would mean that Joseph of Arimathea did not know where his own tomb was. It would mean the angels went to the wrong tomb. As you can see, there's a few holes with that theory. Okay? Then there's one of my personal favorite theories, the swoon theory. Jesus, having been bitten, beaten to a pulp, crowned with thorns, in, in shock, in hypovolemic shock, having been crucified, um, Somehow, because of exhaustion and loss of blood, instead of dying, merely fainted on the cross. And somehow, being interred in the coolness of the tomb in the spring night of Palestine, he revived, even though he was bound up and trussed up and had 80 pounds of spices on him. And then, not only did he revive, but he rolled the stone away and walked 14 miles to Emmaus. Let's consider that and go to break. We are debunking the swoon theory. <clears throat> the swoon theory is a rather silly theory, if you ask me. You know, there's a, there's a variation of the swoon theory, theory that says that Jesus was given reserpine. Reserpine is one of those drugs you find in medieval tales 
whereby, like Romeo and Juliet, whereby uh, Juliet takes the drug that makes her look dead, but then she revives in the tomb. Of course, it didn't go very well for Juliet <laughs> at the time. And, uh, and so there's, uh, you know, there are people out there who believe Jesus took reserpine. The point is this, whether he took reserpine or not, whether he swooned or not, <clears throat> the point is this, he sustained several brutal beatings. He was scourged to within an inch of his life. He, so much as he was unable to carry his crossbeam, he was crucified for six hours and finally had his pericardium pierced by a Roman lance. This theory would imply that the Roman soldiers who were very brutal experts in determining death and in causing that death if it hadn't happened yet did not know how to recognize the fact that Jesus had merely swooned. It also implies that, um, well, first of all, historical evidence says that victims of crucifixion very rarely survived. Even if they were taken down alive, they always died afterwards. It also, uh, the evidence shows that um, if Jesus had survived a perforated pericardium on top of everything else, 36 hours in a cold Palestinian rock tomb sub, 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 uh, subjected to the poisonous exhalations of 80 pounds of aromatic spices would have finished him off. And let's say that he did survive. Like I said, who rolled away the stone? Can you imagine walking all that distance, 14 miles to Emmaus and back, appearing to the disciples on crucified feet in a land before antibiotics? And painkillers? I mean, you know, the whole thing doesn't make any sense. But sometimes it takes more faith to believe these theories than it does to, take the to believe the resurrection. <laughs> then, of course, this is the theory of the stolen body. But again, the Jews took such pains to make sure that this had not happened. This would imply that the uh, pusillanimous, cowardly, craven disciples all of a sudden got a backbone decided that they were going to take on a crack troop of Roman soldiers who were there guarding against that exact eventuality, somehow overpowered the guards without the guards knowing it, rolled a stone back, and made away with the body. And then, get this, died martyrs' deaths to sustain a lie. Basically, you know, when you read these novels today, you know, that say, well, you know, it was a, it was a, the Passover plot. Anybody wrote, read, read that book? There was a book in the 60s and 70s that said that it was all a conspiracy, that he revived in the tomb, and then he, there was this conspiracy that Peter said, oh, let's found the Catholic Church and be wealthy and famous, you know, you know, and get crucified upside down on the Vatican field for your trouble. I mean, you know, it doesn't make any sense. Look at the evidence. Look at the, the look at, look at what happened to these disciples. <clears throat> there was Chuck Colson of Watergate fame says it took a handful of the brightest, most intelligent, most well-educated men in the Western Hemisphere could not keep a secret for three weeks. <laughs> now, how could a handful of poorly educated, terrified disciples of, a, of an itinerant carpenter kept a secret for 40 years and then died for it. You can induce men probably to live for a lie, but you can't induce too many people to die for a, to die for a lie, you know? And then on top of that, the disciples had nothing to gain by lying. And what are they were going to do? Start a new religion? As a matter of fact, evidence shows that they were there in spite of themselves. Peter and John had already gone back to fishing. You could tell they were reverting back. Well, okay, we're going to go back into our comfortable lives. A lot of them didn't, probably didn't want to see Jesus risen because that meant, oh, this is, we're witnesses now. It's all true. I have to give witness even in spite of myself, even though it might cost me my family, even though it might cost me my bad business, even though it might cost me my relationships with everybody I've known, ever known, even though it may ultimately cost me my life. Listen to how <clears throat> the disciples ended up dying. These are the apostles. Peter was crucified upside down in Rome. Andrew was crucified with his arms and legs splayed in Hierapolis. James the Greater was killed with a sword. He was beheaded. He was the first one to die in Jerusalem. 
Philip was martyred in Hierapolis. Bartholomew had all his skin taken from his body while still alive, flayed alive in Armenia, and that particular detail is reflected in the last judgment scene in the Sistine Chapel, if you've seen it. Thomas was run through by a spear in India. James Aless was thrown from a lofty pinnacle of the temple and then stoned to death. Matthew was slain with a sword in Ethiopia. Simon the Zealot was sawn in half in Persia. Jude was beaten to death with a club in Persia. Matthias was stoned and then beheaded in Jerusalem. Paul was beheaded in Rome. And finally, John, the only one to survive, was exiled to Patmos and died of old age in Ephesus. You know, you can tell these guys would have thought it would be better to stay home. <laughs> but they couldn't. Why couldn't they? Because they saw Jesus face to face in his risen body. There was no other evidence that makes sense. Okay? Plus, on top of that, look at the goal and the fruit of their message. What was their message? Was it, you know, send me $25 and I'll send you a blessing? <laughs> you know, give me a Cadillac and I'll bless you? I mean, no. What was it? It was repent. It was a very unpopular message, wasn't it? Repent, convert, and turn to the Lord. Now, would they have perpetrated the greatest fraud of all time just to cheat people into being virtuous? <laughs> By means of blasphemy and fraud, they conspired to trick the whole world into piety, honesty, and benevolence? I mean, let's think about this. Think about what, what the fruits were. The truth is the authority could not counter the empty tomb because Think about their reaction, the persecution, the early persecution in Jerusalem against the fledgling church is brutal, starting with Stephen. It's so brutal that the early church has to get out of there most, for, most, for the most part. Now, if they had thought that the body had been stolen or that Jesus had only risen spiritually, would they have really taken such reactions? Because if you believe that, then the reaction of the Jewish authorities at the time is like taking a sledgehammer to a gnat. It's, it's way too much force. But instead, they knew something had happened. They knew that Jesus had been seen. And they're trying to counteract that. Of course, a corollary <coughs> to the theory <coughs> of, uh, of the stolen body is uh, one that was espoused by the Jesus Seminar in 1985, the brain product of uh, Robert Funk and J John Dominic Crossan, which says that Jesus was buried in a shallow grave and his body was eaten by wild dogs. But again, apply all the other things you know to that theory and see if it makes sense. <clears throat> and if you are going to perpetrate a fraud on everybody so that you can eventually become the Catholic Church and live in the Vatican in wealth and power, which again makes no sense, really would you entrust the first news of this hoax to women? You know, the most inherently unreliable witnesses, <clears throat> according to the law. Another theory, hallucination. This theory says the apostles and about 500 others suffered from individual and collective hallucinations. While hallucinations do happen, they almost never happen in large groups. And if they do happen some sort of group, people rarely agree with what they've seen. Okay? These experiences, usually hallucinations, are very individualistic and extremely subjective, linked to the individual subconscious. Further, men who are subject to hallucinations very, very seldom go on to be heroes, to be people who you want to emulate. Basically, this theory says the Christian church was founded on a pathological experience had by a chosen few, and that if Peter had had a good shrink and all the other guys, that we wouldn't have all this business about the resurrection. It's absolutely inconceivable that 500 people of average soundness, intelligence, stations in life, temperament, at different times, in different situations, should experience all kinds of impressions, auditory, visual, tactile, and it be only a subjective hallucination. That's not possible from a scientific point of view. Okay? C.S. Lewis says, any theory of hallucination breaks down on the facts that on three separate occasions, 
This hallucination was not immediately recognized to be Jesus, like Emmaus. They didn't know who he was. <clears throat> okay, then this is one of my favorites. Next theory, spiritual resurrection. This theory says, and it's common actually between Jehovah's Witnesses, some liberal Christian scholars see, for example, Bishop Spong or the Jesus Seminar or you know, other people following that kind of scholarship. And they basically say Jesus' body did die and stayed dead, but that his spiritual legacy was so strong that the disciples all of a sudden just could not contain any longer the spiritual impact of this revelation. And that therefore it was as if he were really with them because his spiritual legacy was so heavy. So while Jesus' earthly body was decomposing in Joseph's tomb, his spiritual message was being preached as a resurrection of the spirit. So that therefore the disciples at Emmaus didn't really see him. They just felt him. You know, he, they were so overwhelmed by his message that they just imagined that he was there. There are people writing articles about this along these lines. I kid you not. Now, my question would be, would the Jewish authorities have responded so severely to what was a subjective experience? To a spiritual resurrection? Would they have been so concerned if it was merely a spiritual legacy? A spiritual survival only? That'd be a question, wouldn't it? Then there's another theory called the modernist theory, which basically says the resurrection is a supernatural fact. It's not provable historically. It is not quantifiable. And therefore, it didn't happen. And of course, we can recognize this view for what it is. It's informed by the atheistic, rationalistic view of history that emerged in the 19th century among certain scholars, heavily, heavily, of course, influenced by the Enlightenment. Now, to this I would say, this modernist view seems to make, seems to appear scientific, but in fact it is very unscientific, because what it is doing is it's trying to dispense with evidence that one doesn't like. The evidence is there, they're just trying to, to discount that evidence with no real proof as to why they should. And in fact, what we know about science is that you need to prove and test every theory. You can't discount stuff that you don't like just because you don't like it. This theory questions objective reality, the objective reality, the apparitions. And another thing that militates against this theory is that the, the idea of the resurrection of Jesus was not something that gradually developed in the Christian community and came sort of into full fruition three or four hundred years later. No, it was there from day one. Jesus rose from the dead bodily. So, again, <clears throat> just because there are no eyewitnesses to the resurrection doesn't mean it didn't happen. There are no resurrections, there are no eyewitnesses to the Big Bang. There are no eyewitnesses to certain forms of the, of the macroevolution of the human species. There are no eyewitnesses to most of human history. And yet, we do know Certain things happened. Like I said before, so people get convicted in courts of law with less than eyewitness testimony all the time. So why not give this theory of the resurrection the attention it deserves? Why? Because it comes from an atheistic, rationalistic point of view, which automatically discounts all that it does not understand. Right? Jesus himself anticipates the objections of the disciples. Because if you read the readings right after, you know, and Jesus appears, he's constantly saying, what is he saying? It's me, don't be afraid, I'm right here, touch me, do you have something to eat? No, I'm not a ghost, touch me, do you have something to eat? Here, put your finger right here, look. You know, he appears in many different ways in, to many different people, and each time he has to say, it's me, it's me. It's not a ghost. What do they think? It's a ghost. 
So resurrection, the fact that he had been risen, he had been raised, is not the first thing that leaps to the disciples' minds. They have to be convinced that he has risen. They're thinking he's a ghost. They're thinking anything else other than the fact that he has risen. And that, too, is evidence that should militate in favor of this theory because the people who propound it eventually are the ones who have to be convinced of it. Furthermore, look at the effects of the church. First of all, let me sum up the evidence that we have for the resurrection. <clears throat> the testimony of the text of the Gospels, the testimony of the twelve of the twelve in their own blood with Paul, the transformation of Saul from hard-headed intellectual scholar to firebrand Christian preacher. There was no early church debate ever in the church in the in the history of the church. Early church was the fact of the resurrection ever in dispute ever. Centuries of Christian martyrs, diverse sources, including other sources such as Tacitus, a Roman historian, and Flavius Josephus, eyewitnesses to the risen apparitions, and the fact that Jesus did not die again, whereas Lazarus did die again. And of course, the rise of a historical religion, which 2,000 years later, is two billion strong. How could that have risen on a hoax or a fraud or a lie? No, there was some sort of turbo impulse at the beginning, some sort of incredible, unequivocal, undisputable fact that kind of slapped everybody in the face and from which nobody could retreat. And that's why this religion propagated itself so quickly because it was eyewitnesses going to, to other people. Going, it was direct eyewitness testimony. People who had seen the Lord. People, and then, of course, not only the eyewitness testimony of the resurrection, but also the power of the Holy Spirit coming in and quickening people. And then you have miracles. You know, so you have God backing up the evidence of the resurrection with the power of the Holy Spirit. <clears throat> so, this church that we see is five times bigger than the Roman Empire was at its largest. It is traced back directly down 21 centuries to the Jerusalem of approximately 30 AD and to the vigorous and effective preaching of Peter and the apostles at Pentecost and beyond about the bodily resurrection of the Lord. Such a living, growing organism as the church that we experience did not originate from hallucinations, daydreams, or spiritual goosebumps of a few well-intended and well-intentioned fishermen. How is that possible? It originated really from nothing less than the fulfillment and culmination of the covenant made through the blood of the Lamb, foretold and foreshadowed in the Old Testament and made real in the New Testament. Other evidence for the, for the resurrection, it would have taken an act of Congress, literally, for observant Jews in the first century to stop observing the Sabbath. If you will recall all that we've talked about, the Sabbath observance was a basic benchmark of the observance of the covenant. It defined who you were as a Jew. So imagine what it must have taken for Peter and the other faithful Jewish disciples to switch the day of worship from Sabbath to Sunday. It would have taken a very, very important event. Can you name an event that happened on Sunday that would warrant that? Resurrection. The resurrection. The day of the resurrection warrants a substitution in tradition, which was an, like an earthquake. Probably the early church observed both the Sabbath, of course, and the day of the Lord, <clears throat> the day of the resurrection. But that's how we get that, that switching in the day of worship. So having said all that, you've seen the theories. Remember, our faith does not, rot, does not lie on the evidence refuting these theories. Like I said, that's just common sense. That's frosting on the cake. Our faith rises and is dependent upon the deposit of faith of the church, the authority of the teaching magisterium, the authority of the sacred scriptures and the authority of the tradition as it is handed down to us in an uninterrupted line through apostolic succession 
of the bishops and the Holy Father from those 12 guys in that upper room. That's the bottom line. Now, when Jesus, where was Jesus in those 36 hours that he was in the tomb? What does tradition tell us? He went, but did he go to hell? He went to Hades. He went to well, what is called really in other uh, venues, it's called limbo. But that's a term that's kind of falling to misuse. He goes to the, 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 the place of the Old Testament saints, the place of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Moses and David and all those guys and Sarah and Rachel and Rebecca and the 12 patriarchs and Ruth and Boaz and Jesse. He goes to the fringe of heaven, the place where the Old Testament saints were kept who could not see God. Because, of course, what happens when Jesus dies? What does Jesus' blood open for us? Heaven. Before that, nobody saw God. No one saw God. But now, Jesus descends and can detach the shackles and say, let's go home. Let's go home. Can you imagine the, the first homecoming of all those Old Testament saints into heaven, beholding the beatific vision for the first time? And so he returns to the tomb. His body is resurrected. Like all of our bodies will be resurrected by the Son through the Holy Spirit. And there <coughs> is a token of our resurrection because just like we are going to be like Jesus in all things. That's why he's like our brother. He's, our first, he's the firstborn because what he did we will do. And just like he gave us a, a token of what will happen to our bodies when he assumed his mother body and soul into heaven, that too will happen to us at the end when our bodies are resurrected as well as our souls at the last judgment. Now, that's why we don't believe in reincarnation and, and theories of this kind. Because it's not possible. It doesn't square with what the scriptures say. It doesn't square with what the scriptures say about the final judgment and the particular judgment. There is no such thing as the transmigration of souls. There's no such thing as metempsychosis. These are all labels given throughout the millennia to this very attractive idea of a soul flitting around from body to body to body in search of purification, in search of peace, except that at the end, the peace that's given is annihilation. That is the end result of reincarnation. Nirvana is annihilation. It's the body, the soul no longer exists. It goes back into the, the drop of the, into the, 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 the eternal soup of divinity. You understand? So in as much as Hollywood creates some cute movies about reincarnation, and you may have read books or you know, stuff around that, be advised of the facts. Be advised of what our beliefs are. Because so many people seem to be kind of susceptible to, to believing in, in stuff like that. Well, the point is, there's no option here. There's no option for that kind of thing, okay? Now, the weight of the evidence. The character of Jesus himself, the most gentle, kind, honest, ethical, the greatest, the purest man that ever lived. The empty tomb, the grave clothes, the 12 different occasions when Jesus appeared to people, being handled, touched, eating together, the transformation of the disciples, that in my book is one of the most important ones, from craven runaways to fearless preachers who spread the gospel everywhere, who brought the seeds of the word to all the known world at the time and beyond. Eyewitness testimony, the conversion and transformation of such hard-headed realists like Saul of Tarsus into the Paul the Apostle. These are all conclusions that we must draw and see from the evidence. What do we believe about the resurrection? And how does that affect us? <clears throat> now, I guess the bottom line is this. The Holy Father puts it very well in his uh, first letter, Deus Caritas Est. Being a Christian is not the result of an ethical choice or a lofty idea. But being a Christian is the encounter with an event. And that event is the resurrection. 
That's what being a Christian means. It doesn't mean I think I'm going to go for this Christian stuff. It sounds pretty cool. It sounds moral. It sounds uplifting. It's not that kind of decision. It's how do I square up against this, this event that changed history for all time? This is what Father Raniero Cantalamesa says as well, the preacher to the papal household. Christianity is not a composite of teaching, of dogma, of doctrine, where we have a little checklist and we had to check off the things that we believe and then do them, practices. Christianity is relationship with a person, and that person is Jesus Christ. And either we believe him or we don't. And either we know him, we love him, we serve him, or we don't. And either we spend our whole lives seeking after him with all that we have and all that we are, or we don't. There's no sitting on the fence. There's no halfway thing. That's why he says, if you're not for me, what does he say? You're against me. And, one, and something else, to whom much has been given, much is required. Let us keep in mind all these things as we appraise the resurrection of the Lord. The, our personal experience of the Lord, alive today as he was 2,000 years ago, should be what's in our minds when we go to communion and we receive the body, blood, soul, and divinity of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because that body that we receive is his resurrected body. It's what we touch, and it's what we take into ourselves. Let's think about that. And here is what Jesus is saying to each one of us from the words of Revelation. Here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with him and he with me. And so you have the image of, of table fellowship kind of outlining our relationship with the Lord. It's an easy relationship. It's a comfortable relationship. It's the only real relationship we were ever meant to have. All these relationships we have here on earth are just pale copies of the relationship that we are meant to have with the living God and with his son. So, there are questions. Where do we stand with the resurrection? The next time somebody corners us at a party or <coughs> at a gathering, <coughs> at a family dinner, what do we say? What can we say? Ours is a faith that's firmly based on the supernatural. If you don't believe in the supernatural, go home. Honestly, we need to believe in a God who transcends his own creation. He can do that. He's God. We can't. Our faith is firmly based on the supernatural, on the possibility of the intervention of the Father from outside space and time into our affairs and our personal affairs. Ours is not a faith in which we are just nice to people and hope that they're nice to us. Ours is not a faith of positive or negative faith, fate in which, you know, there's this, bad, there's this karmic balance. You've ever heard of karma? You know, I've seen, you know, you read magazine articles about things that are karmically correct. You know, our faith does not depend on karma, does not depend on fate. There are not certain things that were foreordained for us from the beginning of the world other than God's love for us. We have personal choice and free will. We are not slaves of an inscrutable master, as Islam would say. We are children of the Father. We are not impersonal drops of essence in the universal consciousness of the universe, as Hinduism would tell us. And nor is the sole scope of our lives ultimately to obtain oblivion, which is what Buddhism teaches. And nor is our ultimate purpose to bring honor to our family, which is what Shintoism teaches us. Our faith is about being beloved sons and daughters of God, of the Lord of the universe, a personal and involved God who dared to become human out of love for us. Our faith is therefore about our response to all this stuff that we've heard today. How do we respond? What is our response? What, can our own, what does God require of us and how can we set about to do it? And that's something we should be asking ourselves whether we're 10 or whether we're 90. There's always something more for God for us while we're on this earth. There's always choices. God is a choice that we keep on making every day, every moment, every day, every second. 
God will intervene for us always, whether we can see it or not. God answers our prayers, whether we can see it or not, or whether it's in the shape or the form of the answer that we wanted. All prayers are answered. It's up to him to decide what form these will take. It's up to us to love, to trust, and to obey him, and to follow where he leads. Let's stand up. Lord, we ask you for your Holy Spirit, as always, Lord, to illuminate in our minds the great truths that you put before us. We thank you, Lord, for rising from the dead, for blazing the trail for us, Lord, for showing us your glory, for showing us, Lord, how it all ends. Lord, we ask that you would give us the strength and the power that we need to be effective witnesses, Lord, that you would equip us with all your gifts, Lord, that you would send your spirit upon us every minute of every day. And Lord, we ask you all these things in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen.